Let's pray together. Father, our Father, thank you. Thank you that you're speaking, God. Thank you that we believe that this is your very word. And so we ask now, would your word correct us and teach us, train us, that we would look more like you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you illuminate Jesus all the more to us. Would you open our ears and our eyes and our hearts to see you more clearly. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. So, as we are in our series of Is uh, Skeptics Welcome, we have been walking through different questions, different realities for these past few weeks. And as you can probably guess, uh, Acts 4 has a big, big claim in it that we just read. Is Jesus the only way? Acts 4, the Apostle Peter, what he says is that he is. And so we are going to wrestle with that together through this portion of Scripture. If you're at all like me, um, I don't know if you've noticed or pay attention to the cars that have like a hundred bumper stickers on them, you know, especially when you're driving around Midtown, Montrose, Heights area. Uh, My wife usually has to elbow me because I'm like not moving (laughs) when the light turns green because I'm like trying to read each one. And there's actually a picture up here of exactly what I'm talking about. A hundred is probably hyperbole. It's, you know, maybe, maybe a dozen or a couple dozen or so. But there's one in particular, you probably won't be able to make it out. But there's one in particular of this one that says, isn't it strange that in the age of information, the truth is so hard to find? And I think as we're wrestling with, is Jesus the only way? I think this kind of heart here of just so many different opinions that we want to plaster on the back of our vehicles. If that's you, I'm not blasting you, just saying. In the, in the waters that we're swimming in with this, I've heard of another bumper sticker in a similar way. My God is too big for any one religion. This is the heart of what we're, of what we're getting after. When we're trying to answer the question, is Jesus the only way? Because we swim in the waters of our culture and our life, so much of who we are is this, that in the age of information, it's so hard to find truth. And if we think we find it, we might even argue, well, my God's too big for any one religion. And it flies in the face and claim that we see in Acts 4. What Peter says, what scripture's saying is that Jesus is. So let's wrestle this down this morning. What I think we're gonna see in Acts 4 is that if Jesus is the only way, then there's a way to engage with him. That it's actually not true that truth is hard to find. If Jesus is the only way, Acts 4 is gonna show us that there is a way to engage with him. The first portion though, if Jesus is the only way, I think we have to slow down and pause before we dive really deep into Acts 4 and we actually have to wrestle with that a little bit. We can't just take that claim as face value. Because so much of what we're dealing with, so much of maybe what you're struggling with, what you've wrestled with, there are actual claims that kind of go against that. And so I want to just give you maybe three barriers to start out. Three barriers that might get in the way of you being able to even utter the phrase, if Jesus is the only way. The first barrier is this. Each religion sees part of spiritual truth, but none can see the whole truth. Maybe you've said this, maybe you've heard this, Maybe even as you've shared Jesus with other people, that's been the rebuttal that you've gotten back. Like, well, Jesus is just one of many ways to spiritual truth and reality. There's a a story of kind of an 
ancient old uh, parable of an elephant, uh, which you'll see kind of pop up here, an elephant, just to give you an idea, of an elephant uh, and blind men who come upon this elephant. I want to read this to you a little bit because I think this illustrates exactly what this barrier is saying. Several, several blind men were walking along and came upon an elephant and allowed them to touch and feel it. That'd be pretty cool. <laughs> this creature is long and flexible like a snake, said the first blind man holding the elephant's trunk. Not at all. It's thick and round like a tree trunk, said the second blind man feeling the elephant's leg. No, it's large and flat, said the third blind man touching the elephant's side. Each blind man could only feel part of the elephant. None could envision, envision the entire elephant. This is the idea behind this, that there's no way to fully get a full picture of spiritual truth and real, spiritual reality because each part of it is only a little part. It's not the whole. So Jesus then would just fit into that. But the problem with this, with this little parable is that it backfires on its user. Because the next intellectual question that we would then have to ask is this. How could we possibly know that no religion can see the whole truth unless we ourselves have the superior comprehensive knowledge of spirituality we just claimed was impossible? Did you catch it there? That by, being, by kind of being on the outside and going through this story and saying, okay, well, yeah, you can't fully get the, you can't see the whole elephant. You only have a leg. You only have a trunk. You only have a side. It backfires on its users because it's, it's, a, it's a full-on, full-throated, superior view that truth is not fully available or exclusive, which is what this claim is saying is impossible. That's the first maybe barrier for us to be able to just communicate that Jesus is the only way or if Jesus is the only way. The second, second barrier, I think, that might get, us, get in the way of us hearing what is available to us in Acts 4 is religious belief is too culturally, historically conditioned to be truth. This is the idea that if you grew up in the, in the South, in Texas, and what is known as the Bible Belt, of course you're here on a Sunday at church. Because you were more than likely, grow, you grew up in a home that went to church on Sundays. You more than likely grew up in a home that talked about Christian values. You more than likely grew up around the idea of Christianity. So of course, but if you grew up in a different place, then you wouldn't be that way. Philosopher Alvin Plantinga says it maybe this way. Suppose we conceded that if I had been born a Muslim to Muslim parents in Morocco, rather than Christian parents in Michigan, my beliefs would have been quite different. But the same goes for the pluralist, the relativist. If you had been born in Morocco, you probably wouldn't be a pluralist. You probably wouldn't be a relativist. So then, does it follow that maybe the pluralist beliefs are produced by an unreliable relief belief producing process? Meaning, that the whole idea that truth is relative, that's what we're saying here. The whole idea that truth, one truth can't be exclusively superior than another, but it's all equal ground. It's all relative. And the argument that we would make to that, that social uh, conditionedness would, would dictate that, it's really actually an unreliable belief producing system. Because there's no way to like, I am who I am but you're telling me that I am not supposed to be who I am if I was over here. Do you see how it's, it's bound up in itself? There's, there's issues with that producing belief in that process. 
So the third barrier to just get us to the place of saying, if Jesus is the only way, it is arrogant to insist your religion is right and to convert others to it. I'll be honest with you. I'll put cards on the table that I used to think this way. (laughs) I used to feel this way before I came to know the Lord. I thought, man, how arrogant it is to proselytize and change another person's culture and thought and all these different types of things. But there's a problem in this. There's an objection in this belief that I found even in my own life. The objection itself is that this is a religious belief. Because what we're saying is, we're not saying that there's, that there's no such thing as God or that there's no such thing as truth or anything like that. We're just saying, hey, it's arrogant to make yours more superior. But then what we're saying with that, what we're believing about that, we're assuming that God is unknowable or that God is loving but not wrathful or that God is an impersonable force instead of, instead of a person who speaks in scripture. And all of these are unprovable faith assumptions, are they not? And so if you can feel with the tension with me here, the purpose of what we're trying to do is to get us to a place where we might be open. If we're not open to saying, yes, Jesus is the only way, maybe we might be open to say, if Jesus is the only way. Because every, every aspect of this, this is not an exhaustive list, there are many others but there's something off in those belief producing processes that become barriers to us actually kind of coming to the question of, okay, I'll give you if. So hopefully you can feel this. Hopefully you would come to this place of, if Jesus is the only way, then what? And that's what we see in Acts 4. Then there is a way to engage with him. And the first possible option to consider engaging with Jesus is this. Jesus and his followers can't be ignored. Look here with me in verses one through four. Jesus and his followers can't be ignored. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So what's happening here. In Acts 3, what we see is Peter and John, disciples of Jesus, they're going to Solomon's portico. They're about to share uh, about Jesus, crucifixion, resurrection. They see a lame man, beggar, who from birth could not walk. He's asking for alms. He's asking for help. And Peter and John, by the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus, heal him. And so the, rule, the rulers of of the time, they're, they're seeing this. The priests, the captain of the temple, the Sadducees, they're super annoyed by this. Did you catch it? Verse two, they're greatly annoyed. <laughs> it's this one person that they help and then they go to Solomon's portico and everyone sees it and they start speaking and preaching and talking about it's Jesus who did this. And as we see in verse four, about 5,000 men. So that means that more people actually believed that this Jesus was who they were saying he was to be. So they were greatly annoyed and they arrested him. You, do you see it? That Jesus and his followers can't be ignored? If Jesus is the only way, which the lame beggar was not asking for Jesus, he was asking for alms. But Peter and John, who know that Jesus is the only way, gave him to him. If he's the only way, then how do we engage? Since there's a way to engage with him. I think for us, we have to look up and actually pay attention to Jesus and his followers. Now, at the same token, as I say that, I think we have to recognize this is a two-sided coin to this engagement. We have to admit that throughout history, there have been times and people who have claimed to follow Jesus 
who have not been liberators as Peter and John are showing with this lame man at this moment. They were oppressors. We have to recognize that. We have to admit that. We have to actually put that before us and say, okay, this was true and is true. It's not an alternative fact. It has happened. We need to be repentant of that and sorrowful of that. We also have to admit that they were in direct opposition to the leader of the movement that we know as Christianity. Jesus was not oppressive. He was a liberator. He came to liberate us from sin, shame, and death. So that's one side of the coin that we have to admit with this, that we can't ignore Jesus and his followers. The other side of the coin is, this is not an exhaustive list, but we have to actually say on face value that Jesus and his followers have made a massive impact to the world around them throughout time and history. William Wilberforce and the Clapham sect, they abolished slavery in the UK, not because it was politically expedient, but because as they were reading scripture and meeting who Jesus really was, they realized that they were in direct contradiction to who Jesus was, his character, his words, his life, what he was saying. And so they made their whole life's mission. They stayed in the public square so that they could make a change and a difference, not for their own glory, but for Jesus. My mother-in-law and father-in-law are from Southern India and it's been amazing as I've been married to my wife over eight years talking with them about Leslie Newbigin and the other Anglican missionaries who came through there. And with tears in in their eyes, they were so thankful that the reality of like, not only did they bring the gospel of Jesus, but they brought education with them. And over decades and generations, this has changed so much of what they knew and what they grew up in. As I sat across a church planter here in East Houston in Edo, how he talked to me and shared with me like how when Edo was oppressed at different points because of different political realities that were going on decades and decades and decades ago, who stepped in? It was the church. It was followers of Jesus who stepped in to bring education and healthcare in need. You see, it's this that I'm talking about. Jesus and his followers can't be ignored. So believers in the room, for just a moment, I want, as, as a fellow skeptic, if you struggle with skepticism at all, even now as a follower of Jesus, sometimes I wonder if my own skepticism is fueled by my inaction. <laughs> Meaning, not that I have to work for anything. Jesus, Jesus has given freely. But I wonder if I have found myself in the dark hallway of skepticism because I have claimed that I believe a truth that is exclusive, that Jesus is the only way, but then I live a life as if that truth can be ignored. I come on a Sunday into house church and then that's it. Meaning that I've compartmentalized who Jesus is. And this, what we see in Acts 4 just doesn't feel true to who I am. I'm speaking to myself right now, friends. I feel this. Because if this truth is true, if Jesus is the only way, then we shouldn't be people who can be ignored. We should be inviting persecution and suffering and arrest, but also we should be inviting the kingdom of God to move in such a way that we would not see otherwise. Ah, what would that look like? To my skeptical friends in the room, would you for a moment just allow this tension that I'm addressing 
that not all who claim to follow Jesus are actually aligned with his words and ways. And I don't say that out of judgment or condemnation, but just out of a factual observation. Would you not allow that barrier to get in the way? And instead, would you lift your head and eyes and just look because Jesus and his followers are out there and they are doing something for his glory. Stuff is changing around them for God's glory and his kingdom. Maybe that could be a way you could engage this truth. Maybe there's something to this Jesus, to what he has said, because why would these people act the way they do? <laughs> That's the first option to consider in engaging with Jesus. If Jesus is the only way, then we can engage with him. The second way that maybe we could consider engaging with him is what we see in verses five through seven, that questions about Jesus aren't bad. Skepticism is not bad, but there's always a question underneath the question. Look here with me in verse five. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired. They asked a question. By what power or by what name did you do this? Now, remember, they're annoyed. So they have ulterior motives. This isn't just investigatory, right? They're annoyed. They've arrested them. They're seeing something change in the waters, but they're still engaging. They're asking questions. Hey, how did this happen? Which, if you don't feel, isn't that the natural next step? If we're not... If, we're, if Jesus and his followers are not able to be ignored, we should be asking now the next question, how did this happen? What happened here? Why did this happen this way? My boys, many of you have seen pictures of them or sometimes if you come to the nine, you see me walking in double fisting with them because <laughs> they're both, both in my arms. Uh, they're, they're two years old. Uh, I think about them way too much and talk about them way too much. They're very verbal right now. Uh, they're starting to get their vocabulary up uh, a lot. Uh, they're starting to show me how like argumentative they are also. <laughs> um, but they're not quite at, I don't know if you've ever experienced this either with your own kids or friends of kids or maybe nephews and nieces. Have you ever been in a room with a kid when they ask a question and you give them an answer and they just keep asking why? Just like, why? And you're like, because of this. Well, why? Because of this. Well, why? Well, because of this. And it just keeps going until you're like, because I said so. They're like, I'm just, I'm done now. My boys aren't quite to this point yet, but I was actually thinking about this the other day, like because of how verbal they are and what they're thinking about. Besides the first reaction that I probably will say that answer just because I said so, because I'm getting annoyed. I actually was experiencing a lot of joy as a father though, thinking about. Like besides them maybe wanting to tease me a bit, I can imagine my sons wanting to tease me a bit and be a little annoying. I think more than anything, I think they just recognize that their father loves them and that they have freedom to ask as many questions as they want. Like, there's not a point where they ask a question where I'm like, you're dumb for asking that question. Why would you ever ask that question? What kind of good father would I be if I did that? If you saw me and heard me say that, you'd be like, Tyler, what is wrong with you? And I'm an earthly father who's sinful, who messes up. How much more does God love you and me? How much more does God love you and me that he can handle the question beneath the question? Because I think what's happening here with Annas and Caiaphas and the rulers and the elders, I think part of the questions that are underneath this by what power and name, they're trying to snuff out, hey, is this this Jesus 
king that was claimed that we thought we killed and is now being rumored that he rose from the dead that's threatened our very life? Is this the same? That's, what, that's the question underneath this, the question here. The question underneath that question, I think, and I think for you and I is, if it's true that Jesus is the only way for us to be saved, does everything about who I am have to change? Does everything about who I am and what I've built my life around, does that have to change? Does it have to shift and pivot? To which Jesus would say, yes. But he would say, come to me, all who are burdened and weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Trust me, there's safety with me. I think that there's safety, friends, to bring your skeptical questions and heart, hard questions to Jesus. For me, that question is why a lot. Why did that happen from my story? Why did this happen? The more and more I've brought this question to Jesus, the more and more God has expanded my capacity to trust him. It's been the most wild thing I've ever, ever imagined and experienced. And friend, I would tell you, I believe that Jesus is stronger and bigger than your hardest, darkest, deepest question. So bring it to him. That's a way you can engage with him. Questions about Jesus and for him are not bad. But be honest. There's a question underneath the first question and ask that question and the questions that follow. That's the second. The second possible way in which we can engage with Jesus. If Jesus is the only way, then we can engage with him. The third way that maybe we can consider engaging with him is simply stated this way. Salvation is miraculously revealed and only possible in Jesus. So press in like your life depends on it. Salvation is miraculously revealed. It's only possible with Jesus. So press in like your life depends on it. Look here with me in verses eight through 12. Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, By what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you. Well, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And here it is, here is the haymaker. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Do you see it here? Salvation is miraculously revealed. Peter doesn't give verse 12 first. He gives verse eight and a few other things. Peter says, it says here that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Around here, we believe the Holy Spirit is God. So that means that Peter was filled with God to declare things about God. Peter would not have been able to say what he's saying with such surety and claim just from an intellectual perspective. God had to do something. He had to reach into him and fill him up. Salvation is miraculously revealed and it's only possible through Jesus. Did you see it in verse 12? There's no one else. There's no one else but Jesus. There is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. Did you catch the must here? If it's miraculously revealed and it's only possible with Jesus in verse 12, we must be saved. Peter is literally talking to you and me saying, hey, I don't know if you knew, but you need to be saved. Something has to change in you and me. 
So the next natural question for me as I read this is, what is that salvation that Peter's talking about? That is miraculously revealed, that's only possible through Jesus. What is Peter saying here? What is this salvation? I was recently uh, introduced to the game of Clue. Yes, very late in life. (laughs) I don't know if you guys have played this. I did not play it as a kid. Uh, Played it now as a big kid. I actually really loved the game. My brother-in-law and sister-in-law who introduced it, they like wanted to leave my house, but I kept wanting to play. And they were kind and played another couple of games. I love this game though. I, if you know anything about me, like I'm, I'm kind of nerdy. I like reasoning and deductive things. And that's what this whole game is, right? If you haven't played it or if you have, sorry, I'm about to explain it to you. But it's a murder mystery game, right? And you're trying to figure out who killed who, where and when and how, right? Like, That's what you're trying to figure out. And you have like a pencil and a piece of paper and a bunch of options. And the whole game is a search. You're searching. You're searching through all this deductive reasoning for who who did it with what item and in what location. It's a search. That's what the whole game is. It's just one big search. I think that in the waters that that we swim in, in our culture, the waters that we are being formed in outside of our faith at different points are kind of a lot like that. There's a plethora of options. There's a plethora of what seems to be truth out there. There's a plethora of information. So I think when we're trying to answer the question of what is salvation, I think we all have to come to a realization first that we're all searching. We're all seeking, aren't we? Christian in the room, although you would claim that you have found Christ, you were seeking before that, were you not? And are still probably seeking. Skeptic in the room, my friend, you are seeking. You are searching. We all are. What is it that we're searching for? I think we're searching for what God had originally intended for all of us, which was total welfare and happiness. You see, in the early pages of scripture, God created everything and his perfect design was good. It was very good. It was beautiful. It was wonderful. But humanity's search, search for total welfare and happiness, it was not good enough in that moment. What God designed for us wasn't good. So we spun off in a different direction, searching on our own. And that's what we're caught up in. We're all searching for a truth. We're all searching for something. We're all searching for that one thing that might bring us happiness and welfare. And we do it at the expense of others. We do it at the expense of ourselves. It leads us to greater degrees of brokenness. Even if there's momentary happiness and welfare, we're still searching in that way. But here is what we would say is that all serious searching and seeking, even in the idea of searching for salvation, it has a reliance on a clue some clue. Am I getting where I need to go? What I'm looking for? Christians would say that Jesus is our master clue. That we found the clue that we've been looking for. And through him, we now see, we're now able to see by the grace of God, miraculously revealing it to us that he is the only way that he came in the midst of our brokenness and experienced all of that searching and that pain and at the expense of others. And he died on the cross. Why? So that you and I could actually be connected with the father again. He bought us back from sin and death. Then he rose from the grave that is still empty to this day, proving that what he said was true, proving that what he did was real. 
And now he invites us on this search. I am the way, the truth, and the life. You see, we point in our search for salvation to Jesus as the clue to the answer. And so back to our friend, the elephant. The problem with the elephant that we talked about at the very beginning is not just an intellectual problem. It's a problem with Jesus. The elephant with Jesus is like us trying to play a massive game of clue with our life, but then we go and open the board game life with a piece and we try to put it in that game. We're not even playing the same game. We're not even looking at the same animal. Jesus, as much as we try, will not be allowed to be bent into some truth, to a singular truth in the sea of truths. Jesus won't allow that. Why? Because that's what he said. Look, look at the screen with me. These are just a few snippets. If you looked throughout the gospels, you would see with me that Jesus won't allow himself to be associated with that in that way. Meaning he's saying straight up in John 14, six, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. Mark two, five, seven and nine. It's a narrative with a paralytic that he's healing. He goes and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. The crowd around him and the rulers, they were saying, why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming because no one can forgive sins except for God alone. And then Jesus goes on in verse nine to say, hey, you know what's actually easier to do? Healing him. (laughs) But I forgave his sin and healed him. Then in John 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? This is while he is counseling two sisters who just lost their brother that he loved dearly, that they loved dearly. If he's not the only way, then this is some of the worst counseling ever given because he's saying, I'm the resurrection. Do you believe that I can bring your brother to life, that I am actual life, that I am God in the flesh? Do you believe that I'm the only way? And then Jesus, before he ascends to heaven, he makes this massive claim in Matthew 28. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. We start to feel what this means, that if Jesus is the only way, then we have to pay attention. We have to press in like our life depends on it because we're all searching for total welfare and happiness, but we're all searching in all of these other places that don't bring it. But Jesus is standing up and he's saying, I am the clue you've been searching for. I am the one, I am the way, I'm the resurrection, I'm the life, come, I've made a way for you. Or as C.S. Lewis has argued, this is the teaching of an egotistical maniac, an evil manipulator, or God in the flesh. Jesus can't be a part of an elephant in this religious search. So either he has to be a liar, a lunatic, or he has to be Lord of all. So press in like your life depends on it. And as you feel it, as we go through this portion, the if drops off. You press in because Jesus is the only way. And there is a way to engage with him. Let me pray for us. Our Father, thank you for sending your son. Jesus, thank you for showing us that you are the way, the truth, and the life, that there is no one else 
Thank you that we are safe with our questions. We're safe with our search. Thank you that you're honest enough with us to tell us that there is no one else, that we must be saved, but there's no one else who can bring it but you. Thank you, God. So Holy Spirit, I pray for my friends in the room who are believers who are struggling with skeptical thoughts or doubts. Would you show them how much you love them, how safe you are with their questions, that they can ask you anything, that they can go as far and as deep into their heart and into their thoughts as, as they want because you can handle it. God, for us who have lived with this claim of truth embedded in our hearts but have been living as if it can be ignored, God, help us, empower us afresh, Holy Spirit, that we would be a people who seek the flourishing and good of others at the expense of ourselves because it brings you glory, Jesus, and you love it. To my skeptical friends in the room, Holy Spirit, would you open their hearts and their eyes? Would the if begin to drop off? And if it's not quite ready yet to drop off, God, I pray that you would keep allowing them to engage and press in. But if it is, Holy Spirit, would you help them be able to utter the words, Jesus, you are the only way and I can engage with you. Ah, what good news that is this morning. May it rest in our hearts. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.